Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, who writes Eyes on the Right for Substack, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is the Bulwark's own Charlie Sykes. So welcome one and all. We are in the midst as we record this of day three of the January 6th committee hearings. And today's focus is on the role of Mike Pence. And I'm going to start with you, Charlie Sykes. Seems that Mike Pence was a hero because if he had, I know those words are hard to say, but honestly, if Pence had done anything else, or if he had done the bidding of the then sitting president of the United States, we would have been in the midst of a massive constitutional crisis. That seems inarguable. And by the way, thanks for the invitation. It's uh, good to be with you today. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was listening to uh, today's hearing and reading Judge Ludig's statement that we published in The Bulwark is try this as a mental exercise. Try to imagine that you were hearing this all for the first time. Imagine this was all coming out now, that we had not spent the last year and a half parsing through the various details, having it leaked out uh, you know, here and there. What if this story was now just coming a case of first impression? It would be overwhelming. It would be absolutely overwhelming. And I think the magnitude of the threat would be breathtaking. I think people would look at it and realize, as Judge Ludwig said, how democracy was on a knife edge, that this was the crisis of the republic, um, that none of the language that we use around it uh, was, in fact, overhyped. I mean, I remember at the time, our colleague Bill Kristol used to tweet out, I am alarmed. And we kind of, you know, chuckled about that, said, yeah, well, that's good. I'm glad he's raising the alarm. But now in retrospect, we realize that none of us were as alarmed as we ought to have been. Well, if I remember correctly, Charlie, Bill was starting to say he was alarmed when he saw that the Secretary of Defense had been replaced and then the Attorney General resigned suddenly. You know, that just never happens, you know, with just a few weeks left in a term. And so Bill was absolutely right. Yeah. Remember when all of the former living secretaries of defense signed a letter saying that there should be no role for the military? What was going on that induced them to do this? So um, I do think that, you know, Judge Ludig's analysis in writing was quite compelling. I think he was less than a compelling witness on live TV, but that's that's really neither here or there. It's just watching, you know, this play out. And, and, and as to uh, Mike Pence being a hero, I know that some people push back against all of that. But there's one of the pivot moments of history. If yeah. Mike Pence had been the Mike Pence we'd seen over the last four years, American history would be different. And in terms of heroism, I imagine a soldier who has been uh, cowardly and, uh, you know, pretty much a jerk for his entire term in the military, and yet finding himself in combat and at the decisive moment this deplorable character decides that he is going to rush and throw himself on a hand grenade. Is he or is he not a hero? Should he be judged by all of the other you know, moments uh, where he failed to step up? Or did he define himself by that one action? And I'm sorry, I know that this is unpopular for many of our listeners, but there's something extraordinary and you know, something that tells you a lot about 
Mike Pence. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things to tell you negative things about Mike Pence, but this was in many ways an heroic act because he had to know that he was throwing himself on a political hand grenade. So that's a brilliant image. And, you know, I have to say it wasn't just a metaphorical act of courage because he was in physical danger. And so, Bill Galston, I'm going to turn to you. One of the things that's just maddening about listening to some of the commentary among people we call the anti-antis, you know, the anti-anti-Trump people, is, well, come on, you know, there's nothing new here about the hearings, you know, to which one could say, look, we had a sitting president of the United States willingly endangering the life of his own vice president. That's new. (laughs) It sure is. And as for the hearings as a whole, I'm not a lawyer, but don't the lawyers have a saying that goes something like race ipso locator? Yes. This matter really does speak for itself. But with regard to the main narrative, I think there can be very little doubt whatever. A third dimension of the hearings, namely laying the legal predicate for the prosecution of the former president, is, in my judgment, a much narrower call because that relies, and I ask the lawyers on this podcast to step up, that relies on definitions of conspiracy, various sorts of causal nexus, the factual predicate for which is very difficult to establish in a court of law. But as far as the narrative for the American people goes, the facts are compelling And it speaks to not only how dishonorably and dangerously the President of the United States behaved, but also the threat that our constitutional order was under. And perhaps I should revise the past tense in that statement because I believe that it remains under threat. And if the 2024 election goes the wrong way, that threat is likely to be realized. Linda, one of the aspects about these hearings is that some of the people, we have to, we need a new expression. You know, there's pinkwashing when somebody tries to cover up a flaw by being, you know, pro-gay and there's, and there's other kinds of washing. There should be something for what some of these Trump people are trying to do here because, you know, people like Bill Stepien are saying, well, I was on team normal or even Bill Barr. I mean, look, Bill Barr, did resign. But when he resigned, he didn't tell the truth to the American people at the time. He didn't say, this is BS. This is crazy. This is worrisome. I can't be a part of it. No, he issued a letter full of praise for the president's, un, you know, uh, what did he say? Like unprecedented accomplishments in office and blah, blah, blah. So I'm wondering if you have thoughts about this effort by some of these people to claim that they were on the good guys team. Let, let me just say about Bill Stepien. I mean, you know, he is now advising Hageman, who is who is challenging, I should say he's working for her, he's, he's on her payroll, uh, who's challenging Liz Cheney um, and who is an election denier. Right. Um, so <laughs> right. your thoughts. Well, yeah. So... <sighs> You're absolutely right. But, you know, you're forgetting a very important detail, Mona. 
Bill Barr had a book to write. He wanted to save all the good stuff uh, for that book so that he could sell books and make, you know, millions of dollars, I guess, as several others who've been involved in this have done as well. And it is very disheartening. It's sort of stomach turning the way some of these folks have behaved. I hope these hearings get through. I hope that people who should be listening are listening. It's not clear to me that they will. I think that Bill is right. I think, you know, history is is going to matter. It may be that, you know, we are laying the predicate here for indictments down the road for people having interfered with uh, an official congressional act. And I think that, you know, if you are listening and if you listen to people like Judge Ludig, what we had here was an attempted coup. And the fact that it did not succeed, it really did rest on Mike Pence. And while I agree, Mike Pence is not my favorite Republican, my favorite politician, my favorite conservative. But when it came time to choosing between being loyal to Donald Trump or being loyal to the Constitution, he did choose the latter. And I think that does say something. It probably uh, will eliminate him as a possibility to ever become president, because I don't think he'll uh, get the nomination of the Republican Party. But, you know, I also think it's important to focus on the fact that this is not over. You know, our friends over uh, at the Claremont Institute like to talk about a cold civil war that is going on right now. They are still talking about war and revolution. And of course, that is where John Eastman hangs his hat still. They have not disaffiliated with him. He heads one of their uh, units at the Claremont Institute. There are lots of conservatives who continue to embrace the big lie. And so I think we're still at at peril. I think, you know, we've got a lot of people on the ballot who will become state elections officials who promote the big lie. We've got other people in, you know, governor's races and, and other races who could play a decisive role in 2024. And uh, I think that these hearings are very important because it is not over yet. Damon, let's quote a little bit more from uh, Bill Barr who famously said, I'm going to risk the uh, rating of this podcast, but he described the accusations or the allegations of fraud in the election as bullshit. And then he said, quote, there was never an indication of interest. He's talking about the president now. He said, there was never an indication of interest in what the actual facts were. I was somewhat demoralized because I thought, boy, if he really believes this stuff, he's lost contact with, he's become detached from reality if he really believes this stuff, unquote. Now, fast forward, Bill Barr, a few months ago, being interviewed, and he's asked, well, if Donald Trump is the nominee in 2024, will you support him? Well, he said, yes. If he's the Republican nominee, he'll support him. Is that the GOP in a nutshell right now in 2022? Well, yeah, I'm afraid it is. Although I do, I mean, one of my watchwords uh, lately in my writing has been to emphasize the need to draw distinctions. And this whole morality play we're going through here and that are being rehearsed in the hearings, it really does give us a, a broad spectrum. So actually, the GOP is actually a very interesting and dangerous, complicated place, if you think about it. 
let's talk like, you know, we, you, we did, we praised uh, Mike Pence, I think rightly for doing the right thing when the moment came. We have a kind of mixed ambivalent attitude toward Bill Barr, who said the right things in his testimony, but had definitely wavered in the past and didn't really stand up when it would have made more of a difference in the run up to January 6th. But remember, we also have all of these judges, many of them Republicans, and even some of them Trump appointees, who heard all of these cases that all the Trumpies were bringing, trying to show election fraud, and them getting batted out of court over and over and over again. Those people also deserve some praise because that's the normal Republican Party. Those are the Republicans who actually take a stand with the truth, with reality, the common world of facts and truth that we all share. But then on the other side of the spectrum, not near the line that Bill Barr is dancing on, but firmly on the other side, we have Donald Trump himself, John Eastman, we have Steve Bannon doing his thing, dancing around on the phone with Trump, trying to maybe on the one hand could be convincing him to, you know, not intervene with what's going on in the Hill, or maybe he's telling him that he should intervene because he's thinking longer term about his own, meaning Bannon's future and reputation. You have Ginny Thomas, the wife of a sitting Supreme Court Justice, Clarence Thomas, who's apparently regularly in touch with people in the White House, and now we know with John Eastman giving him tidbits of information about what's going on, those folks are living in this completely alternative reality where really anything that they want to believe is true, which of course is not in fact true, but is the reality they're constructing. And I, I want to give you a brief quote here to show you the sensibility of these people. It's not just a matter of epistemology and not knowing what's true. This comes from uh, Thursday's testimony. Eric Hirschman has testified that he told Eastman, quote, you're going to cause riots in the streets. And Eastman responded shruggingly, quote, there's been violence in our history before. Mm. So, I mean, this is a guy who's thinking, hey, I'm going to do and say anything I can to win, to enable Trump to stay in power despite losing. And I really don't care. So, you know, you set up my segment here by saying, like, isn't kind of the prevarication that we've heard from Bill Barr over these last few years, isn't that the Republican Party? I actually think that is part of it. But the Republican Party is everything I just narrated, the kind of the normal on one end with the truly alarming and abnormal on the other. And then Bill Barr is kind of right there in the middle dancing on the tightrope. So, Charlie, I want to come to you on this because the worry is that every time a new barrier falls, every time you take another step on the ladder of degradation, let's call it, or you know, the descent into it, that those ordinary Republicans who did the right thing in all different aspects, whether it was a local, a member of a canvassing board, as we saw in Michigan, Aaron von Langeveld, I think was his name, or whether it was secretaries of state who refused the pressure to change the outcome, or whether it was judges who did the right thing. Every time 
there is a terrible breach of propriety and of honesty and so on, it weakens the resolve of those people to do the right thing the next time. And that's why it's so important that there be accountability of some kind for what happened on January 6th. So I wonder what your views are on that. And then I also want to ask you one other thing about Tucker Carlson. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, you're obviously right. I mean, a lot of what's been going on has been designed to pressure those people, you know, basically saying, you know, if you stand up, um, we will come for you. I mean, what is Donald Trump's revenge tour all about? And he failed in Georgia, but he's been succeeding in other places. That if you don't embrace the big lie, you will be destroyed. And I think the danger is twofold. Number one, that Republicans will be cowed into going along with it, you know, telling themselves the story that they are still on Team Normal while they are enabling, you know, Team MAGA, Team Crazy. And the second concern is that many of those people will no longer be there in 2025 or in the future that they simply will be gone, that many people are dropping out of politics, withdrawing, saying, you know, why do I need this? Uh, You know, why would you be an election official now, local election official? You know, who needs it? Life is too short. Why put up with a kind of vitriol? And so as you have the the normies, you know, begin to withdraw their places taken by those who are, you know, filled with passion and alternative reality. And by the way, I just wanted to kind of uh, underline what Damon just said. (laughs) I mean, that response by John Eastman, really ought to be a warning flare that discussing the possibility of violence around our election, and he casually just shrugs his shoulders and says, well, we've had lots of violence before. The acceptance, the normalization of the possibility of political violence is a real threat. And that's why this is ongoing. The folks at Claremont have been normalizing it, the fact that he would say something like that. And I think what we've learned is how often and how easily many of these ideas or thoughts, positions that seem so extreme and outlandish, eventually become mainstream. Yeah, exactly. And people shrugged in 2016 when Trump was a candidate and he was saying, punch him in the face or I'll pay your legal bills if you rough him up. You know, I mean, that kind of thing right then and there should have set off everybody's alarm bells. And instead it was like, oh, he didn't mean it, et cetera. Okay. I have one more question on this for Charlie, but we'll come to that right after this. It's the final week for Genucel's summer blowout sale. Now save over 60% off Genucel's most popular package at genucel.com and get two free gifts with your order. Your order will include Genucel's dark spot corrector to visibly reduce those pesky dark sunspots free and Genucel's immediate effects for results in as little as 12 hours. Genucel's Dark Spot Corrector uses special peptides to visibly reduce the appearance of dark spots, age spots, and yes, even sunspots that summer leaves behind. Genucel has been known for quality skincare since the very first treatment for under-eye bags and puffiness. Especially in the summertime when the heat and humidity and the longer days can really take a toll on your skin and your eyes, it provides a great therapy for that delicate skin around your eyes. And that's also included in your most popular package today. Genucel guarantees results or your money back. And sign up for Genucel's best-in-class rewards program at checkout for an extra 10% off your order and a complimentary gift set. Go to genucel.com slash beg to differ. 
genucel.com slash beg to differ. Enter my promo code beg to differ at checkout for an extra discount and free shipping. Go to genucel.com slash beg to differ. genucel.com slash beg to differ. We are back. Charlie, there's one other aspect of this that I would just like you to address real quick, and that is it was awfully telling, don't you think, that on the first night of public hearings of the January 6th committee, Tucker Carlson ran his entire hour (laughs) show without commercials because every other network, including the Fox Business Network, every other network was covering the hearings and he was terrified that people might get a glimpse of the truth. Is there any other way to look at it? Well, you know, this is what's interesting about it because shows like Tucker Carlson take commercial breaks. <laughs> this is this is the norm. So he changed. Not that the, there's the, anything wrong with no, that, I should no, say. We do no, too. No. Well, of course we do, <laughs> but that's the format of the show. And he right. changed the format of the show for a reason. I mean, he could have gone to counter-programming, but you know, he knows that people sit there in the living room and they have that remote in their hands. And if they had switched to virtually any other channel, they would have seen things that Tucker Carlson did not want them to see. And so I think at some level of his consciousness, he realizes that he needs to shield his audience from this inconvenient truth. And by the way, before we move on to another topic, I just want to call attention to the fantastic piece that you wrote in The Bulwark and that uh, Will Salatin also wrote about you know what we have learned about Donald Trump. And as you point out, the problem with Donald Trump, we can't be stuck in the 1970s asking, what did the president know and what did he know? And I think you make this brilliant point that it's a category error for somebody who lies the way most people breathe. The fact that Donald Trump may have convinced himself of certain bizarre facts is not reassuring. And as Will wrote, if in fact the president was not lying and was really delusional, isn't that actually worse to the question of putting him back in the Oval Office. I mean, you know, for Republicans like Bill Barr, you're looking at all of this and going, okay, you seriously are open to the possibility of returning this man to the presidency when he is either lying in pushing a seditious uh, conspiracy to overturn the government, or he is so detached from reality and so delusional that he pushed the country to the brink, but let's give him another shot. That's one of the most extraordinary things about What could possibly go wrong? Exactly. (sighs) All right. Let us now turn to the sitting president, Joe Biden. So as everybody knows, the president is in a considerable amount of political trouble. It's looking very bad for the Democrats in November. But some people think Jonathan Shade of New York Magazine had a piece about how, you know, Actually, I underestimated Biden's capacity to get bipartisan deals. And, you know, he got the infrastructure deal and he is close to getting a U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, although Bill Galston can talk a little bit deeper about that possibly. But um, he got the Juneteenth holiday. He got a bunch of things that people didn't expect and he's not getting credit for it. So, Damon, I'm going to start with you. Do you think it's not fair that Biden isn't getting credit for this legislative record, or do you think it's because of the way the Democrats have conducted themselves? Well, uh, is it unfair? Well, yeah, life's unfair. I mean, uh, yeah, sure. I think 
it's all a matter of proportion. If your measure is, did Biden fulfill one of his promises, which was to lower the temperature in Washington, depolarize it a little bit, get things done for the good of the country instead of having all of the rancorous fighting and gridlock that we've seen so much of. He has had some success at that. The shade is correct. The deals that you mentioned are all important. And I think the one that's pending right now about gun reform uh, is also extremely significant that uh, he is at least in a kind of passive way overseen this kind of uh, very old time senate kind of deal where you have 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats coming together and coming up with a compromise bill that won't make the extremes on either side that happy, but seem to be such that if it could pass the House, then in the Senate, you would have enough votes committed to it with 10 Republicans on board that it could get through. Uh, without a threat of a filibuster. Like, this is a, a, a good positive development. But note that I didn't use a lot of superlatives in that description of it. And that's simply because, in the end, these things don't matter as much as whatever the crisis of the moment is. And we happen to be living through an era of crises. One crisis is the one that we've been talking about up till now on the show about January 6th, it, what it meant at the time, what it might portend for the future, what's become of perhaps not those 10 senators in the Republican Party, but lots of other senators and House members in the party and many others in the electorate. And then, you know, the pocketbook issue of inflation, which uh, we'll be talking about, I think, in more substantive detail later in the podcast. People are hurting at the gas pump and at the grocery store and in other places, and that is weighing on people's mind. And so it's sort of inevitable that Biden isn't going to get a huge amount of credit for what is, again, something worth applauding. It is good that he's overseen this. Now, note my last point will be that in addition to the lack of superlatives, I've used sort of halfway passive verbs to describe this, like overseen, stood back, and let happen. Mm. The, the irony of this is that both in this case and more generally, when such sort of depolarization succeeds in Washington, it's often because the president is not getting involved in it. Because as soon as the president does get involved with it, then the other party that isn't the same as the president's sort of has a motivation or an incentive not to give any victories. And so that can automatically generate opposition. So I think it's precisely that, yeah, I mean, Biden has had some kind of hot rhetoric about guns over the last few weeks since the last uh, spate of uh, mass shootings, especially the school shooting. But once Congress started its negotiations and conversations, he wasn't, you know, inviting people to the White House or going over to the Hill and trying to meddle in it and put his name all over it. So that creates a kind of paradox that to the extent that these bills actually do pass and good things happen, the president's in the position of wanting to take credit for having done something when it appears that it happened despite his intervention, not because of it. Bill Galston, it's often said that if you talk about the problem being messaging, that's really never the issue. It's not the messaging. But I want to present a possible demurral from that. Look, the infrastructure deal. This was a half a trillion dollars. Trump had spent 
most of his term claiming that it was infrastructure week and bragging that he was going to produce an infrastructure deal. In fact, he was so upset when Biden got one that he urged Republicans to vote against it just because he thought it made him retroactively look bad. It was a big deal, half a trillion dollars. It included not only uh, traditional things like roads and bridges, but broadband and public transit, rail, electric vehicles, electricity transmission, getting all of the lead out of pipes that deliver water to little children and rot their brains. So huge deal. And yet it got swallowed up by Democratic infighting. And part of that, I have to say, was because Biden made a decision to link it to his other priorities and say he wasn't going to sign it until they passed the other stuff. So fair or unfair? Fair as far as it goes. The White House management of the linked infrastructure and build back better bills was a muddle and an inconsistent one, made worse, I'm afraid, by a rare feckless performance by the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, But let me get back to the main point that you put on the table a few minutes ago, that is the issue of getting credit. That invites the question, credit from whom? And there's a difference between getting credit from pundits and getting credit from the American people. Because the people are not keeping score the way we keep score. They are not interested in a list of legislative accomplishments. They're interested in the question of whether they can feel the effects of those accomplishments, whether they've made a difference in their daily lives. And if they haven't, then the president and the incumbent party are not going to get any credit simply for passing bills. I rarely tell White House stories, but permit me to tell one uh, because it was a big learning experience for me. It was the fall of 1984. I was in the Clinton White House as the second in command on the Wait, not House. 1984. It would have been 94. I'm sorry, 1994. Thank you. Right how time flies. When <laughs> up. And I was in the White House in 84. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's true. And I didn't see you around too often. So you must be right, Mona. Uh, <laughs> at any rate, uh, as you may recall, in 1994, things were not going too well for the administration. The health care bill had collapsed. Bill Clinton's claims to be a different kind of Democrat you know, had been weakened, if not undermined, by the choices he made about his agenda in the first year and a half of his administration. And I decided to cheer the president up. So I wrote him a memo saying, Dear Mr. President, while you've been preoccupied rightly with other matters, I can report to you that the Congress of the United States has passed nine different education bills under your leadership butter them up a little, including some that have genuinely changed the conversation about public education in this country. And I spent the rest of the two-page memo spelling them out uh, and then concluding by saying, you could do a lot worse than mention these accomplishments a bit more frequently when you're out on the hustings. Uh, He sort of took my advice and it made no difference whatsoever. 
<laughs> and it made no difference for a very simple reason. Actually, two very simple reasons. First of all, those bills hadn't had any effect on the ground. So from the standpoint of the American people, they were neither here nor there. Secondly, the people's agenda, the agenda of things that the American people were concerned about in the fall of 1994 had very little to do with the Clinton education reform agenda. You cannot tell the people what to care about. And I agree with the thrust of Jonathan Chait's remarks. And I am prepared to say that the pundits ought to give the president more credit in certain respects than he gets. But the idea that that's going to translate into a meaningful impact on the coming midterm elections is, I think, fanciful and flies in the face of American political history. Linda, I want to quote to you from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was uh, being interviewed on CNN last weekend. And uh, by the way, when she made news because they, they asked her if she would endorse Joe Biden for a second term, which was the topic of our podcast last week, where we were talking about whether he was too old to run again. And uh, anyway, she refused to give him her endorsement. She said she would look at it. Kind of interesting. But she has endorsed a competitor to one of her colleagues, Sean Patrick Maloney, who's actually a, a, the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. So she has endorsed a primary challenger, Alexandra Biaggi. So the interviewer said, well, you know, some people think this is crazy that you're sort of undermining your own side and primarying somebody who's already in office when you have but a weak grasp on power, very slim majority. And she said, Quote, you know, I think we have seen from prior primaries throughout this year that a motivated, young, multiracial, multi-class base is exactly what the Democratic Party needs in order to win in November. Unquote. <laughs> so, Linda, this is the eternal fiction that the Democrats or some part of the Democrats can't seem to rid themselves of. This idea that this magical, huge turnout of young, biracial, multicultural people is going to rescue them. What do you think? Yeah, that is pretty interesting. Um, and at least one group in that coalition, uh, Hispanic, seems to be running for the doors. And, and you know, Asian and Pacific and Islanders Asian, too. And Asians as well. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so it's a little bit crazy. But look, I think part of the problem that Joe Biden has had is that he is constantly having to look over his left shoulder and see, you know, who's coming for him, whether AOC and her gang or the squad are going to be gunning for him. And so he's never been able to govern as he ran as a candidate. And while I agree with the sentiment that when you talk about messaging, that that is generally not the solution to simply change your message. But the fact is, Joe Biden has not been out there making his case to the American people. And you and I both work for a president who was known as the great communicator, Ronald Reagan. Well, part of the reason he was known as the great communicator is that he actually did communicate. He actually went out on the road to sell his own programs. I mean, I was there as, as were you during the whole time that tax reform was up in 1985, while it was being debated, and then later passed in 1986, the president was out on the road all the time, going into communities, uh, speaking directly to people, getting on 
local news, even if the national media was not friendly to him, which it was not. Joe Biden doesn't seem able to do that. I mean, he occasionally makes trips out, but, you know, he just isn't connecting. He's not giving primetime speeches. He's not doing news conferences that let the people see him. And he's constantly trying to balance his message so that he not offend anybody on his left flank. When it was people in the middle who elected Joe Biden, and if he is to have any hope of remaining in office in 2024, should he choose to run, it will again be people in the middle who are going to elect him. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is never going to be a Joe Biden fan. She wasn't last time around. She's not going to be this time around. The left is going to have their own agenda, as they have had throughout this presidency. And I think he's just not been able to make his case to the American people because he hasn't tried. And maybe he's not capable of doing it. You know, he is sort of a gaffe machine. But he managed to do it and win an election. He managed to make a coherent argument on his behalf when he ran for president. And something happened. And part of what happened is I think he has one of the worst White House staffs in recent memory, with a few exceptions, mostly in the foreign policy area. Ron Klain is, you know, if you go back and look at effective chiefs of staff over our presidential history, even our recent presidential history, I just think he's been a terrible chief of staff. And I think the president is not well served by the people around him. Charlie, I would like you to mm. elaborate on something that you said. Well, so uh, for those of you who don't know, Charlie and I do a secret podcast every <laughs> week for members of Bulwark Plus. So if you'd like to hear that podcast, please become a member. We'd love to have you. But you said something this week that I'd like you to uh, elaborate on. You said regarding the Democrats, you had one job, right? And so I'd like you to talk a little bit about that in light of this argument about Biden and his legislative agenda. Yeah. Um, and by the way, this week's secret podcast is really good. So people really ought to check it out. Mona and I had, we had, we had a lot of ground to cover. If in fact you do think that uh, democracy faces this existential threat, then Democrats had one job, which was to not screw it up to the extent that Donald Trump could return to power, could return to the the Oval Office. And I know that people like, you know, uh, AOC thought that, no, their job was to uh, be transformational. They talked themselves into thinking we could be, you know, FDR, we could be LBJ without looking at the math. And uh, Linda is absolutely right when she says, look, it's going to be the senator that's going to determine this. But in fact, they got distracted. They got distracted pandering to the left. And I know that this may seem like an overused term by now, but they should have embraced popularism which is pursue policies that are popular. Don't necessarily swing for the fences. Do what you can do. Work with the political reality you have. But also understand that your job number one was to restore faith in American constitutional democracy and to protect it against you know, the barbarians at the gate. So as you look around, at this administration imploding in the polls, the kind of chaos that you're seeing, the age-old uh, return of the circular firing squad, and I apologize for using that particular cliche, uh, you realize, look, you guys had one job, not to mess this up. 
not to blow yourselves up to the point where you will have a majority in Congress that will be at the whim of the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Lauren Boberts, the Paul Gosars, uh, you know, those folks. Uh, you're looking at a United States Senate. Uh, with people like, you know, J.D. Vance. And I'm sorry to tell you, you know, possibility of people like Dr. Oz and Herschel Walker. And why? Because the Democrats did not deliver what they needed to deliver. As Linda just said, Joe Biden has not governed the way that he campaigned. And it's no longer really just a messaging problem. It's a substance problem. I mean, just before I came over to do this podcast, I filled up my rather modest car, my Ford, um, with gas, and it cost me more than $80. Look, I mean, you understand that's not a messaging problem by the administration. It's the fact that, you know, they've effed up the economy uh, like they effed up Afghanistan. And here's here's my, my, my real frustration, I think. You understand this, Mona, over the last uh, six years, we, we've become more willing to say I was completely wrong about this. Um, <laughs> we made an error of judgment. I really did think back in 2020 that Joe Biden was the right man for the right time, that he was, you know, he and the times, you know, were aligned. I think I was completely wrong about that because the times required a much more forceful leader, a much more dynamic leader, somebody who could communicate in the new political environment. And he is just not that man. All right. Bill, do you have something real quick? Because we're running long on this segment. If there are any columnists or editors listening to this podcast, here's my suggestion, colon. You could do a lot worse than trace the history of the modern Democratic Party by comparing Alexandria Biagi to her grandfather, Mario Biagi, a longtime New Deal, meat and potatoes, Democrat, former member of the New York police force, etc. That is the prism through which an important slice of American political history can be viewed. Interesting. Okay, thank you for that. And we will come back with a discussion of the economy and inflation after this brief message. Friends, the most important moment of your financial life could be right in front of you. Experts predict a recession bigger than 2008 may be coming, which means you could lose 27% of your wealth overnight. But the good news is that if you prepare like the experts, you've got nothing to worry about because they're investing their wealth in hard assets. In fact, top financial experts say there's one that's safer than gold. In other words, it's one that can help you protect and grow your wealth which explains why so many billionaire investors invest 20% of their wealth in it. I'm talking about fine art. And thanks to a game-changing company called Masterworks, you can get in for a fraction of the price. Despite the market turmoil, they've already handed investors over 30% returns, and not once, but three times in a row. They currently have over 400,000 users, so offerings can sell out in three hours or less. But Masterworks is giving my listeners priority access today. Just head to masterworks.com and use promo code beg to differ to get started. Again, that's masterworks.com and use promo code beg to differ. Before deciding to invest, Carefully review the important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer.
All right. The Dow dropped something like 700 points after the Fed announced a 0.75 increase in interest rates. This was somewhat unexpected, but the reason they did that is that the inflation number was a little bit higher than expected. And it is looking incredibly grim at the moment because, as we have often said on this podcast, once inflation gets rolling, policymakers have very few tools in their toolkit to fight it, and all of them are bad because when you raise interest rates, you usually cause a recession. So I'm going to start with you on this one, Damon. I actually looked this up before today's broadcast, and I want to just boast about us for a second. You know, when we first started warning on Beg to Differ about the danger of inflation, was March 12th, 2021, the day after the American Rescue Plan was passed. And we all said, you know, well, I don't know if we all said it, but it was said on this podcast that it was too big and that it came hard on the heels of other huge amounts of spending that had already taken place during the pandemic. And we warned about inflation. So here we are. Yeah, I think the only person who may have beaten us is Jonathan Last, also at the bulwark, because he <laughs> he had an item this week where he patted himself on the back about uh, mentioning it in February of twenty twenty one. All right, then. So clear, clearly, this segment of uh, <laughs> of the uh, punditry uh, class uh, is very much keyed to uh, the dangers of inflation by overspending, and we all were alert to it. But not uh, to know, say that's the only big. thing that caused it. Far from it. No, it it is. Well, I mean, clearly there are a lot of structural things. There was the fact that we shut the global economy down because of the pandemic and uh, people shifted to being at home. And we did support people, I think, rightly early on with uh, a lot of economic support, which led them to, uh, you know, really in demand really increased because people were spending. And then we kept giving them money and they kept demanding. And yet the supply chains had been shut down and that started it probably. And then we added even more in those early months of the Biden administration. And then more recently, you have the war in Ukraine and the energy crunch that we've seen coming out of that. So you kind of, it's it's all of those things together. And don't forget that it mix. is a global phenomenon. We are not the only country that's suffering from 40-year high inflation. True. Although it is, a, we we are a couple of points higher than Europe, yes. and uh, and economists do trace that distinction to the uh, sort of unprecedented spending that we did do here. So that has made it a little bit worse here. But yes, I mean, you know, who knew if you shut down uh, a lot of the global economy because of a, a massive pandemic that's killing people, uh, starting it up again, you're going to get all bunched up in places. And it appears that that may have started the train, but it, it was not where it stopped. Um, and now the question is, how do you stop it? We're almost guaranteed for a recession. We don't know how bad, deep, or long it's going to be. And uh, that means that in the short term, and uh, we're now at the point where the November midterm elections are in the short term, those are going to be a bloodbath because the economy is not going to be doing very well at all. People are going to be hurting. But it might, might I'm not really making a prediction. I'm just talking probabilities here. It might 
work out that this is all going to work through the economic system and get resolved in time for 2024, whether that's Biden or Harris or somebody else uh, running on the Democratic side. So it, it is early. If you went back in time to the summer of 1982 and looked at the Reagan administration and the economic situation, you might have thought, wow, he's going to have a rough time two years from now. And look what happened. 49 states and mourning in America. So there is hope for improvement, but at this point in in the cycle, it's really difficult to know precisely how bad and how long it's going to go on. I mean, the stock market, as you noted, is heading down. There are all kinds of structural reasons to think that uh, the market has been driven to its kind of ever higher highs over the last decade by interest rates being effectively zero or even less than zero. And with that, shifting with this week mortgage rates cracking 5% for the first time in many years. A lot of things are lining up that could uh, lead things to get much worse before they get better. Yeah. I mean, I used to always puzzle that, not always, but frequently puzzle over the fact that in the um, nightly business report, they would always talk about housing starts. And I would think, well, what about business creation? What about other things that go on in the economy? Why so much emphasis on housing starts? And there, there is a reason, which is it's a huge part of the economy. And when when uh, the interest rates go up and it becomes more expensive to buy a home, it, fewer companies build homes, and that lays off a lot of people who create all the stuff that goes into homes, which is a lot of stuff. All right, Alinda, so we do hear that President Biden is considering some beneficial things, but one of the things that just troubles me about, and he's not unique in this, politicians do this all the time, but he's been assailing oil companies for their greed and saying that the greedy corporations and Elizabeth Warren, same thing, you know, it's the supermarket owners who are responsible for the inflation. Can you address this eternal punching bag of politicians? Well, of course, they get very angry that uh, companies exist to make a profit. (laughs) And so (laughs) when uh, the chance to make a profit uh, increases, uh, companies actually take advantage of that. Gee, surprise, surprise. That's what capitalism is all about. Is there some price gouging going on? I don't know. I think that one of the big drivers of inflation right now, of course, is energy prices. And that is not Joe Biden's fault, uh, certainly not his fault alone. I know a lot of Republicans say, well, you know, he stopped drilling, he stopped this, he stopped that. Well, turns out that a lot of the oil companies have leases, which they were not actually using in terms of their drilling on federal lands. So I'm not sure that's as big an issue. There is an issue with refineries. Refineries, uh, there is a bottleneck at refineries. We haven't built a new refinery in the United States in something like 60 years. And there's a reason for that. And there is a, it is true that the continuous uh, attack on fossil fuels and the pledge that we're going to move away from fossil fuels you know, that is listened to in the boardrooms of oil companies. And when they have to make decisions about investments, like do we want to invest in a new refinery? Uh, It's a very expensive thing to build. And we're being told that fossil fuels are a very bad thing and we can't use it anymore. Do I really want to invest shareholders uh, dollars uh, in building a new refinery when there may be less and less demand for oil in the future? These are complicated issues. And of course, the war in Ukraine has been a huge factor 
in terms of energy costs. So it's multifaceted. It's not all Joe Biden's fault. It is not something Joe Biden can fix by signing a new bill or, or even talking differently. And it's not necessarily something that the Fed is going to be able to fix in the short term. So I think we were right to be reminded that uh, during the early Reagan years, President Reagan was elected in part because of the phenomenon of stagflation. We had both inflation, stagnant wages, high interest rates, everything was going wrong at the same time. But it took a couple of years to get that under control. And it wasn't looking really good for Ronald Reagan's reelection early in his term. And yet he came back in 1984 to win a landslide. So I don't think we can predict today necessarily that the Democrats are going to pay the price of this. But it is also true that inflation is the thing I think that hurts people the most, as as has commonly been said. It is the biggest tax on Americans. It's felt more acutely even than, you know, increases in sales tax, uh, income tax, uh, homeownership taxes. It's felt every time you buy something if the price is going up. So, you know, it's a bad time right now. Uh, And we're going to go through a very rough period. And how it's all going to settle out, you know, if I could predict uh, what two years from now is going to bring, I wouldn't be doing this podcast. I would be spending my billions of dollars uh, on something (laughs) else. Well, and another thing one might add to that list is that unlike unemployment, which, you know, when unemployment rises, it hurts some people very, very badly. But the thing about inflation is it hurts everybody. Everybody, You can't escape it. Absolutely everybody notices. So that's why they call inflation a president killer, potentially. Bill Galston, there is something he can do, though. There is something that Biden can do besides standing behind the Fed and supporting the Fed in raising interest rates, which he is doing, so that's good. But he can cut tariffs. And, you know, there was a study by the Peterson Institute of International Economics that said that a feasible package of tariff removals could uh, drop the consumer price index by 1.3 percentage points and translate into about an $800 per year more in the pockets of every American. Uh, Quite true. There is a lot of controversy about the magnitude of the Peterson Institute's findings, though not about the direction. It has been widely reported that the Biden administration is debating a significant tranche of tariff cuts. This is a complicated substantive and political argument because people who want to take a hard line against the Chinese are worried that the Chinese will interpret this as a weakening of the American position which in some respects it would be. Nevertheless, given both the substantive importance and the political salience of the inflation issue, I would expect the Biden administration to do something of that sort. But I think in order to damp down inflation in the long term, we're going to have to have a really honest national discussion about the trade-offs we face. And here I will follow up a little bit on what the issue that Linda raised, namely energy policy. U.S. refining capacity has dropped by nearly 6% in the past few years. And a lot of that has to do with clean air regulations. Refiners are not building new refineries 
And in many cases, they're closing old ones. It was just announced that a national refiner whose name eludes me is going to shutter a refinery. Why? Because they were faced with about a billion and a half dollar bill to upgrade the refinery to meet clean air standards. They didn't think they could make a go of it with that kind of investment. They tried to find someone to buy the refinery and keep it open. And the potential purchasers did a back of the envelope calculation, and they all declined to go forward with the purchase. And so the refinery will be closed, increasing the shortage of refined gasoline and related products. So we're going to have to ask ourselves, step back from the daily debates about energy policy and environmental policy and climate, et cetera, and ask as a country, what is a sustainable balance that over the next 10 to 15 years will get us from where we are to where we need to be? What are the trade-offs? What are Americans willing to pay in order to achieve a different energy future? And until we have that discussion, we are going to have an incoherent, shortage-prone and inflation-prone energy sector, which is going to drive a lot of the rest of the economy. And the seriousness of this is increased and underscored by the looming global energy shortage, where we can either be an important part of the solution or a major part of the problem. Charlie, Bill's point reminds me of what you were just saying earlier in this podcast about whether Biden is the man for the moment, because it strikes me that this is a moment when a leader really needs to have some scope and imagination and be able to say, you know what, the time when we can rely on fossil fuels and their nefarious providers around the world, I mean, most of the places that we buy fuel from, we'd rather not have to be dependent on, especially Russia at the moment. So this would be a moment for some real creative leadership and to say, you know what, it's time that we make a transition to renewables, and that includes nuclear. <laughs> to non-carbon producing sources of energy. There was an article about Romania, which has a nuclear program that they mm -hmm. are expanding. And it's all about how Romania could be a big part of the energy security for Europe. And so that is an area where I feel, and I'd be curious if you agree, that Biden is missing an opportunity here for some creative leadership to say we really do need to transition, as Bill was saying, and to have a discussion about transitioning to these new energy sources, including nuclear, which is cheap and abundant and non-polluting. I agree with you a, a thousand percent on the whole nuclear issue. Uh, but once again, this is the kind of thing that we ought not to expect from Joe Biden because this would put him crosswise with uh, some of the base that he you know, is not willing to do that with. This is the problem for Joe Biden because on the one hand, well, I mean, there's, there's two problems. Number one is um, I think the markets are losing confidence in the administration's ability and the Fed's ability to actually control that. So that's number one. Once you lose that confidence, there's the possibility of free fall. Number two, let's be honest about it. Some of the policies that we are talking about have been designed to restrict the supply of oil and gas. You restrict the supply, the price goes up. This has been actually something that a lot of you know people on the in the Democratic coalition have been in favor of. And then this is descriptive because I am not an expert in this field. 
I will tell you that this is the perfect Republican talking point, because what they can do is they can point at the policies of the government of this administration that have restricted the drilling and the capacity for creating more gas and oil, and then point to the price at the gas pump. And people make that connection. You shut down the pipelines, you know, the shut down the Keystone XL pipeline. And now he has to go hat in hand to the Saudis and people are paying more than $5 a gallon. So this is a tremendously difficult problem. He has very few tools to deal with it. And frankly, politically, much of his coalition has been pushing for years for policies that will drive up the cost of energy, at least in the near term. And so that creates kind of this Rubik's Cube problem that I'm trying to have a very, very hard time figuring out how he's going to resolve between now and 2024. Right. Okay. On that note, we will take a short break and return with our highlights or lowlights of the week. Do you feel like you're living in a media bubble? Like it's harder than ever to find views that challenge your own? That's where the Lost Debate steps in. It's a podcast and a YouTube show for political eclectics who crave exposure to a diversity of beliefs and perspectives. The Lost Debate covers the latest news, ideas, and trends without the bias and manipulation from the mainstream and alternative media. It's hosted by Ravi Gupta, a former staffer for Obama and school principal, who fought Republicans at the ballot box and then fought alongside them for charter schools. Also, Corey Bradford, a progressive political organizer turned TikTok star who used to host a Fox News radio show. And also Ricky Schlott, a Gen Z New York Post columnist and libertarian fighting to protect free speech. They come from across the political aisle and from different generations, but come together for debates that sound less like crossfire and more like discussions between real people. Join the conversation. Check out The Lost Debate today. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Thursdays. Find The Lost Debate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. All right, Linda Chavez, highlight or low light? Well, this is both a highlight and a low light. And I'll direct our listeners to an article that appeared in Vox, which was titled What America Owes to Dreamers 10 Years Later. And as uh, many of our listeners, I'm sure, are aware, this week marked the 10th anniversary of DACA, which was, of course, the the rule that the Obama administration uh, laid out that would allow a certain number, actually in the millions, of young people who had been brought to the United States illegally by their parents to be able to essentially normalize their lives, get a protected status, freedom from the threat of deportation, get the right to work, go to school, join the military, etc. But that provision uh, has been under attack. And in fact, a lower court ruling basically uh, has uh, struck it down. And in July, the Fifth Circuit, one of the most conservative circuits in the United States, is going to take up the Obama rules uh, on DACA. Uh, and so we have now a situation where we have almost a million young people who benefited from being able to uh, regularize their status here in the United States, but have been given no permanent path 
either to becoming uh, permanent residents or uh, becoming U.S. citizens, and millions more who will not have that opportunity at all. And this is a real travesty, uh, and the responsibility lies squarely on the shoulders of the United States Congress. And I hasten to add the holdup has been uh, members of the Republican Party in Congress who have really prevented any serious consideration of the DREAM Act that was at one time proposed and was at one time actually sponsored by Republicans uh, to give those who'd come here illegally but through no fault of their own a chance to be what they are in all measures except legal, uh, and that is Americans. So I would uh, point our readers to this article. It interviews some of the people who uh, originally benefited from DACA, who actually sat in the Capitol and listened to the debate on the DREAM Act and the failure of that legislation to pass, which then prompted President Obama to put into effect through Department of Homeland Security provision to allow these youngsters us to stay in America. It's a sad day, and it's sad that 10 years forward, we still haven't solved which should be a very easy problem to solve. Yeah, and so frustrating, as you say, because this is one of those issues where, you know, vast numbers of the American public want there to be a resolution of this. And yet here we are. All right, Bill Galston. This one is going to be a low light, I'm afraid. Uh, a little more than a month ago, I lauded German Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, for the remarkable pivot that he made in German defense and foreign policy authorizing major new expenditures uh, for German defense and also pledging to help Ukraine, as the rest of the NATO alliance and others have been doing. Well, that was then, and this is now. Unfortunately, in the past month, Germany has delivered almost nothing to Ukraine in the way of weapons that will make any difference in the battle at all. Mr. Schultz admittedly heads a complex coalition with three parties. The other two parties are firmly in favor of maximum feasible aid to Ukraine. But Mr. Schultz's own party, the Social Democrats, is deeply indicated in a soft on Russia policy that they've been pursuing for decades. And Mr. Schultz seems paralyzed by the possibility of opposition from within his own party. There was a very important and stinging lead editorial in the New York Times, which I hope will encourage the chancellor and his close associates to get off the dime and deliver on their promises to Ukraine. Because in case anybody has forgotten, there's a big war going on in the heart of Europe and the Russians are moving forward and the Ukrainians are being defeated amidst scenes of horrible slaughter, not only of troops, but civilians. Come on, Germany, step up. 100%. Thank you. Damon Linker. Yeah. And actually, before I get to my highlight, I would just say I agree with Bill uh, entirely, except in the notion that Germany getting off the dime will make a big difference to uh, the Ukraine battle. I mean, we're 
providing the overwhelming majority of the aid and the monetary support at this point. Where what this matters for is the future and the viability of NATO pivoting to a much more aggressive posture in light of these events. And so I don't really think it's going to make much of a difference to the current war, whether uh, Germany starts sending weapons. I do think it'll make a big difference about what we have to do and the rest of Europe has to do going forward. But yeah, I agree. It's definitely a low light. So yes, my highlight uh, is actually uh, an essay by one of my favorite writers. I think I may have referred to him once before in a highlight uh, on the podcast, uh, a guy named Demir Marusik, who uh, does a number of things around Washington. I think he has a gig at the Atlantic Council and also uh, writes for and does a podcast with something called Wisdom of Crowds. And for that outfit, uh, once every week or two, he does an essay, and this week's was titled, It's not about democracy, which is a provocative headline on a provocative essay. His contention here is not so much that the crisis America faces doesn't have anything to do with democracy. In other words, those on the right who seem to not care very much about it versus the rest of us. His point is merely that what we call a crisis of democracy in America is downstream from an even deeper and more threatening problem, which is a crisis of legitimacy, which is the fact that Republicans and Democrats increasingly view the legitimacy as a principle in politics as different things that aren't compatible with each other. So we each side judges the other to be illegitimate, and increasingly this takes the form, at least in one of its forms, in denying the legitimacy of the previous election. And this, of course, reached unprecedented heights in the 2020 election. But there are other forms that it takes, and then also forms that it takes that don't have anything directly to do with elections per se. But uh, it's a very suggestive, provocative, and interesting essay, and so I recommend it to uh, our listeners. Again, It's Not About Democracy by Demir Morusik. Thank you. Charlie Sykes. My highlights and lowlights have to do with uh, the vanishing rare phenomenon of political courage. And so the lowlight... Uh, was uh, the uh, rather overwhelming defeat of uh, Congressman Tom Rice down in uh, South Carolina, one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump, unlike many of the others who had cast that vote. He did not walk away from it. He did not try to recede into the weeds. The man uh, stood by his principle. Uh, he went down to defeat with his dignity intact. It's still a low point because it it... It reminds us again that uh, someone like Tom Rice, um, honest and principled, has no place in the Republican Party anymore. The highlight, kind of the flip side of that, Liz Cheney, I don't think has any illusions what's going to be happening to her. And yet she is willing to also, if necessary, sacrifice her political office to stand for what is right. So once again, we have an you know, underline what profiles and courage actually look like. And, and Liz Cheney continues to be an absolute star who is solidifying her place in American history, juxtaposed to uh, somebody else who also did the right thing and went down. And And I think, uh, Mona, you made this point again in one of your brilliant uh, bulwark essays that uh, for her, 
it's not whether she wins or loses that is important to her. Um, that primary is not what she is focused on. She is focused on what's happening right now, telling the truth to the American people about the threat to democracy. So that would be my highlight. Excellent. Of course, I agree 100%. And thank you. All right. I would like to draw attention to a piece by our friend Chuck Lane, writes for the Washington Post, has been a guest on this podcast. His piece is called Democrats can't have it both ways about the threat of GOP extremism. And he addresses himself to the phenomenon of these Democrats who are purposely promoting the most dangerous MAGA election denying nuts to be their opponents. Uh, It happened in Pennsylvania where Doug Mastriano got a boost from his opponent, Josh Shapiro, And there are a number of other races where this has happened. And what Lane argues is that if these people represent a genuine threat to our liberal democracy, which Democrats claim to believe, they cannot be too cutesy by half and try to promote them on the grounds that they'll be easy to defeat in November. I think we all saw how that worked out in 2016. And um, it's playing a very, very dangerous game. So I recommend this piece by Chuck Lane. I commend him for writing it. And uh, with that, I would like to thank our guest, Charlie Sykes, thank our panel, thank all of you for listening. Jonathan Siri is our sound engineer this week. We have a rotating uh, crew. Uh, Nice to have Jonathan here this week. And Katie Cooper, as always, is our producer. I want to thank all of our listeners. Please rate and review us. It really does help us. And I read all of your emails and enjoy them very much. We will return next week as every week.